Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, verses 22 through 31. And the title this evening is Settling the Score. Settling the Score. So now we come to Samson's last deed at the tragic ending of Samson's career. Samson started out, man, with a lot of potential. He started out with a bang, and yet he was so disappointing. It started out, his, his life and ministry started out with divine revelations to his parents. He was blessed with supernatural strength, and he had great potential to do great things for God and a lot of good for Israel. He had the chance to deliver Israel from the evil Philistines. But because of his rebellious life, it's a shame that he, that he fulfilled very little of his potential. And let this be a good warning to each one of us to be better stewards of our character and of our gifts and of our calling. There is both shame and respect in Samuel's life. Matthew Henry said, Though the last stage of Samson's life was inglorious, and one could wish there was a veil drawn over it, let this account here given of his death be allowed to lessen, though it does not quite roll away, the reproach of it, for there was honor in his death. The last thing Samson did, which is probably best known to all that he did, it took the form of a great act of revenge on the Philistines. In what he did, he wanted, to, uh, he wanted it to be vengeance on the Philistines for his two eyes that they took from him in verse 28, which they had put out after his hair was cut off. And our last study is going to look at the forces at work in his revenge, in what he feels is settling the account, you know, settling uh, the, the, all that he had you know, lost and, and been through. Power was needed if revenge was going to be taken against the Philistines. But Samson was weak because verse 20 says God had departed from him. But after Samson had been in prison for a while, circumstances changed. And the forces needed to bring about this action against the Philistines finally came on the scene. And the power needed for revenge came with the restoration of Samson's hair while he was in prison, and the reproach of Samson's God in Philistia. So let's look at verse 22 now of chapter 16. It says, However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. So his hair grew back. With his hair restored came the, rest, uh, the restoration of his Nazarite symbol. His long hair was a symbol that he was a Nazarite. And then razor was never to come to his head you know, as he fulfilled his Nazarite vow. It was a symbol of his power and of his service. Now, as many of us go, know, hair doesn't grow overnight. And for some, it doesn't grow at all. But uh, nonetheless, it would take some time for Samson's hair to grow back. So his restoration to his Nazarite status and to God's service would be a slow process. So here we learn an important truth about being restored to the Lord's work. 
And it's important that we understand this. God forbid that you, know, you ever get in that place where you have to be restored back to, Lord's, to the Lord's work. Restoration is possible after you have grievously sinned. But understand, it won't happen overnight. It will take some time before you can serve the Lord again, especially depending upon what the sin was, how serious of a nature it is. One commentator said, We conquer evil consequences of sin and regain lost powers and position by degrees. You see, if you've lost your position in service because of sin, and you know, we want to get back to serving the Lord, you need to remember your restoration won't be so soon after you fall. Now, you can be forgiven in a moment. You know, you can sin grievously <clears throat> one moment, <clears throat> and in the next you can say, Lord, I messed up, forgive me, and you will be forgiven in that same moment, but not restored in a moment. A lot of people think restoration comes with forgiveness, but it doesn't. Because sin takes a terrible toll. It does a lot of damage. And the wounds have to heal. And you have to prove and build and reprove your trust all over again. And trust isn't proven in a few days, but over a period of time. And, and there's no specific limit of when that restoration can take place or will take place. And one of the greatest examples, not that it's a great example, but maybe one of the best examples in a, in a bad way is, is when adultery takes place in a marriage. And over the years, I've seen it happen a lot. You know, a man goes out and he is unfaithful to his wife. You know, she finds out one way or the other. He confesses or she finds out. And it's a real strain on that relationship. And a lot of times it does irreparable damage. Not that it can't be repaired, but it just is too much for some people. The man repents. He tells his wife he's sorry, that he messed up big time, and he says all the right things. And then expects the next day to be normal. You know, to go back to what it was. The good times and the blessings of marriage and the affection and the intimacy and all the things that involves a good marriage. But it doesn't happen. She's been hurt, deeply hurt. And he can't understand. You know, I said I'm sorry, but well, that doesn't take away what you did. It doesn't take away the pain of what has taken place in her life. You've broken your trust. That trust has to be restored. It has to be renewed. You, she has to see, you know, if you're getting back together and she sees you're truly repentant, you're going to have to do what God wants you to do and needs you to do to restore this relationship. And that takes time. Well, how long? I couldn't tell you that. That's when you have to wait upon the Lord. Because again, you, you, you brought this into the marriage. Yeah, you're forgiven by God. You're forgiven by your wife. But you know what? It doesn't take away the pain and the sorrow and the consequences. So now you're just going to have to wait upon the Lord. You're going to have to wait for the Lord to deal you know, with your wife, get her through this difficult time so that you can move forward. But again, there's no time limit. You know, it, it's different for everybody. So again, forgiveness comes in, de uh, uh, restoration comes in degrees. And again, you can be forgiven in a moment, but not restored in a moment. Oh, so again, it's important that we understand that. 
But not all things, again, not all things will be restored with forgiveness. So in Samson's case, only his hair was restored, not his eyesight, not his freedom, and he was still a prisoner. And, and again, depending on the, on the type of sin, you know, you may never be restored to a, a ministry or a particular ministry. And, and for example, uh, it's a terrible thing, but, you know, if a man um, molests a child, and, and, and you know, it, it's, it's on record, and, you know, they may tell us, you know, and, and say, hey, look, I've, this, this happened to me, and, you know, I've, I've repented, I've forgiven, I've, I've been, you know, I went to the Lord, and, and you know, I, I'm, God's forgiven me. Yes, that's true. We love you. We will pray, you know, worship with you, but you will never be allowed to go into the children's ministry. That is a given because something was done that, you know what, I would never, you know, allow the children to face that again because it, it could be a big temptation to him. So again, you're restored in the Lord. You're restored to the fellowship, but that's one thing that will, you'll never be restored to because of the nature of the, uh, of the sin. So it's important that we understand that, that again, we can be forgiven for our sins in a moment by God, but not necessarily restored to the, the, the ministry um, or, or the, the place that, that you once served in because again of the nature of the sin. In Samson's case, like I said, his hair was the only thing that was restored. His eyesight wasn't restored. His freedom wasn't restored. He was still a prisoner. The sinning Christian will find out that though some things might be restored, not all things will be restored. Restoration is limited depending upon the nature of the sin. Your desire to serve, it may come back. But where you may serve may not be the same because you may have been disqualified. You've disqualified yourself from certain areas of service because of your sin. Dedication may be restored, but confidence in you by others may never return. And this will limit you in your area of service. Your fellowship with God may be restored immediately because of His grace and His forgiveness, but scars will remain which will disturb your peace and your joy for the rest of your life. Again, a commentator said this, sin leaves consequences which produce, produce suffering even after repentance and a return to a better life. Don't take sin lightly. It works havoc in any life. God restores enough to encourage every believer who has grievously failed, but he doesn't restore all things so that men don't take a light view of sin. Samson was restored enough so that God could use him, but his restoration was limited. So was his service. God allowed him to carry out one more act before he died. Samson's restoration was, re was ignored. We'll see these things here about his restoration. First of all, Samson's restoration was ignored by the Philistines. The Philistines didn't seem too concerned that Samson's hair, his hair was growing back. Now, you would think that they would have kept shaving it off after finding out it was the source of his strength. But the Philistines, just like the world, treated the situation carelessly. And they lived with a sense of false security. 
They showed, earlier, they showed this earlier in Gaza, remember? That they could lull themselves into a false sense of security and not be prepared for Samson's midnight escape from the city. Samson had been a thorn in the side of the Philistines for 20 years. But now they have him locked up. So it gives the Philistines a good reason to celebrate and to honor their god, Dagon, who they thought helped them capture Samson. So the celebration didn't happen right away after they brought Samson in fetters or bonds to Gaza. It was some time later because, again, some of Samson's hair had grown back. Now, we don't know why it was later. But again, we do know that everything is in God's time. So that his hair had time to grow again and for his spiritual strength to return. Giving this false god Dagon all of this praise didn't go over so well with Jehovah God. As Exodus 20 tells us, our God is a jealous God. Now, usually we think of jealousy as a bad thing, but it's not when it involves God. Because God truly did give his son for us. He died for us. God deserves the highest honor and glory. And when he doesn't get it, he's upset, and rightly so. So now God's going to involve himself in dealing with the Philistines. His power, his forces are going to come upon the scene now. And a people or nation can only dishonor God for so long before God brings judgment on them, those that have dishonored him. And instead of bringing honor and glory to God Almighty by an obedient life, Samson, because of his sin, gave the chance for a heathen God to be honored. And here they are again, about to do the same thing, letting his hair grow back. You know, there are people like the Philistines. They don't pay much attention to the warning signs about the danger of their unsaved soul. You know, they wallow in the pleasures of the world. And they ignore anything that would stir them up to consider the eternal danger they might be flirting with. And because of their carelessness, they're suddenly destroyed. Like thousands, the thousands of Philistines were when Samson brings down the temple. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God, speaking of Dagon, has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. Jehovah God is being reproached here. He's being disgraced in Philistia. And this will anger him, and it will help Samson to settle the score to pay back, to pay them back. The reproach of Samson's God in Philistia can be seen in the Philistines' honoring of Dagon and in the Philistines having Samson in prison. Secondly, there was reproach in dishonoring God. Capturing Samson called for a big party, and it was time to celebrate. So the lords of the Philistines, they gathered themselves together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice and to celebrate because Samson has been captured, thanks to our God. And it was a common practice in heathen nations in their religious festivals to bring out their prisoner from prison and to offer thanks to the gods who they thought helped them capture their enemies. Remember because of David's sin, 
What Nathan told David in 2 Samuel 12, 14, he said, David, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. When we mess up, when we sin, oh, people love it because they love to say, oh, and he's or she's supposed to be a Christian. Oh, they go to church and they believe in the Bible. When we sin, man, it gives the enemy a chance to blaspheme our God. Our sin is always a reproach upon God. It brings a lot of shame and disgrace to Him. So when sin calls, when it tempts us, we need to remember what sin does to the honor of God and refuse the temptation of sin. Because the honor of God should be our number one reason for not yielding to temptation. We need to avoid sin because of the the curse it will bring upon us. But an even higher motivation for not sinning is the dishonor it brings upon our our, our Jehovah God. If God's honor was our main concern in our lives, our lives would reflect great purity and holiness. So we can see at least two situations here that would greatly encourage Samson to want to do something because of the resulting of himself, uh, I'm sorry, the insulting of himself, and because of the injury to his eyes. Look at verse 25. So it happened when their hearts were merry, speaking of the Philistines, when their hearts were merry, that they said, call, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them and they stationed him between the pillars. All this means is that they wanted to make a fool out of Samson. And that's what Satan wants to do with you and me. He wants to make a fool out of us. Some writers say that Samson may have been made to dance in some way to some music. All of this was meant to mock Samson, to put him down, because he had been a terror to the Philistines. He'd been a terror to them at times, but now they could order Samson around to do whatever they wanted Samson to do, to do stupid and humiliating things for their entertainment. You see, this would make Samson angry as it would anyone. There's not much more that will humiliate a person than to be publicly embarrassed you know, like Samson was. And the biggest reason for Samson's encouragement to settle the score with the Philistines was the loss of his eyes, according to verse 28. He prayed to God to help him take revenge on the Philistines. But when the Philistines put out his eyes, it was their undoing. Because you see, it was an important factor in the great destruction of the temple and the thousands of Philistines that died in Gaza. Verse 28 We'll get back to the other verses. Then Samson called the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson prays to God to help him one more time. One more time against the Philistines. And this was only the second recorded prayer of Samson in Scripture. It was of the flesh and of the spirit. It had both good parts and bad parts. There are at least four good things about Samson's prayer that we want to look at. First, he prayed to God in the time of need. He was being abused, while God, and at the same time, God was being, ashamed, was being shamed. We need to pray at these times. Secondly, he wanted to be strengthened by God. Samson knew that he couldn't do what he needed to do without God's help. We're too weak in ourselves to carry out our services. But that weakness can be our strength if a consciousness, if we're aware of it, 
drives us to God for his strength to help us. Paul became aware of that in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He said, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God has an affinity to weakness. Third, Solomon prayed to the right source. You know, when we pray, it has a lot to do with who we're praying to. You know, a lot of people in the world that aren't saved, they say, oh, you know, I'm praying for this. Well, who are they praying to? If they're not saved and they don't know the true and the living God, who are they praying to? And then they get angry when their prayer is not answered. Samson prayed to Jehovah God. He did this even through, even though everybody around him was praying to the fish god Dagon, and even though his own nation was worshiping idols and, apost- and they were apostate. This kind of faith in the true God doesn't go unnoticed by God. He hears those prayers. And this experience of praying to God uh, and the time he prayed in Lehi when he was ready to die of thirst are the two reasons that would put Samson in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the heroes of faith. These two times when he cried out to God by faith will give him the divine honor of being in faith's hall of fame. The fourth thing we see here is that Samson prayed earnestly. He was for reals. He was for reals in his prayer. And so many times we see this instruction in Scripture about praying. You know, you don't have to shout at God. You don't have to cry to God to be sincere. But Samson's heart must be, uh, it, it, it must be serious when he's praying. It has to be earnest. Because his prayer meant business, and those are the kind of prayers that will be honored by God when they come from the deepest parts of our heart. Then we have the bad parts of his prayer. There's two things in his prayer that we shouldn't do. First, his desire for personal revenge. And second, he says, he says Lord, answer my prayer just this once. First, the bad part of his prayer was wanting revenge. Wanting revenge is not a good reason for attacking the Philistines. And revenge seems to be the only reason that he was going after them. It would be better if he had attacked them because they dishonored God. If Samson's motives would have been higher, he would have done so much more against them. Motivation does affect the character and the quality of our work. And we need to be more concerned about our motives, why we do what we do, why we serve God, why do we go to church, why do we give, why do we read the scriptures? Are we mainly seeking our own gain and honor? Or are we really motivated to honor God and to glorify him? Samson did kill many Philistines here and at other times, though it was for the wrong reasons, the reason of personal revenge. And it doesn't make it right. It only shows, at best, that God's grace uses us in spite of us. And then the second bad part of this prayer was Samson limited his prayer. He said, Lord, just this once. Why not ask God for as much as we want? Why not ask God for more victories? You know, we all limit God. Lord, all I want is this one thing. When he's wanting to give us everything according to his will. Lack of, the, uh, lack of zeal for the thing we're doing or lack of faith in God encouraging, encourages this limiting of God. But Samson's final act was quite an accomplishment. 
Samson brought down a huge building by pulling down two main pillars that supported the structure, killing a lot of the people who were in it. God was clearly involved in Samson's final act. God is always ordering providence or his hand to create opportunities for us to serve. He's always giving us opportunities to serve. So we have to pay attention to our situations to see God's hand in them and then use them, those opportunities for God's glory. There are four important characteristics about Samson's situation in the building. Believed to be, it's believed to be that this was the temple of Dagon, which shows that divine providence, God's hand, was making it possible for Samson to bring great destruction <clears throat> upon the Philistines. The first characteristic here is it was the, the, the largeness of the crowd. This was a big crowd. If the building was empty, it wouldn't have had mu as much effect on Samson's final act. But it says here the building was filled with people. Look at verse 27. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Because of the size of the crowd, Samson could deal the Philistines a heavy blow. The second thing that we see, the second characteristic here in what Samson did is the leaders in the building. Again, notice what verse 27 says. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men, women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. The leader, Samson would be able to slay all of the chief leaders of Philistia in his final act. And God had set this whole thing up for Samson to accomplish this great work against the Philistines. Also notice the next characteristic here on Samson's situation was his location. Look at verse 25 and 26. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for us Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him, notice, between the pillars. And then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, <clears throat> Let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Where Samson was in the building gave him the ability to do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. It says they stationed him between the pillars that supported the building, the structure. But again, God's providence. It was God's hand who placed him between these two pillars. So that when he pulled on the two pillars, it brought down the whole structure. The fourth characteristic we see of Solomon's situation is the person guarding Samson. Look at verse 26 again. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Samson asked the one who was guarding him to lead him to the pillars so he could lean on them. He, his guard was careless. And his guard agreed to Samson what he asked for. Okay, Samson, no problem. So he puts him between the two pillars you know, which would cause the most damage when he pulled them down. Look at verse 29 and 30. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. 
Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might. And the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. So this was the great final accomplishment, the final work of Samson. And it was great in regards to strength. It says there in verse 29 and 30, he pushed with all of his might. And this includes the supernatural strength that God gave him at that moment. This wasn't his normal strength. It was supernatural strength that God gave him. The fifth characteristic we see of his situation is what he did was great when it came to numbers. Again, notice it said the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching. A lot of lives were lost in that moment. It was a mass slaughter. Think about it. In just a moment of time, thousands of people went into eternity with no warning. And this is a powerful warning to always be ready for eternity for we never know the day or the hour that we're going to go into eternity. No one knows when God is going to say, today or tonight, your soul will be required of you. The sixth characteristic we see of Samson's situation was it was a great judgment. God's holy judgment came down hard on the Philistines. They were drinking and praising the idol Dagon. That's what it means. It says when they were going about, when they were making merry. And the psalmist said in Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. But most people just water that down. Take it lightly. Because a lot of people often view God as a gentle old man who in the end is going to be sympathetic towards us, to all sinners who, who just wink at, wink at their sin. You know, and they, oh, well, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I tried my best in this life. And, and, and they think these, that, that, that he's, God's going to pat them on their head and say, you know, you did your best. You tried. And he's just going to let everybody into heaven. How dead wrong they are. It's nonsense. And this mocks the seriousness of sin. And it sets people up for God's judgment. The Philistines were having a depraved and wretched God-dishonoring orgy. And God simply steps in and he put an end to it with a swift stroke of his judgment. The seventh characteristic we see of Samson's situation was the judgment that, that took place on the government. Samson's last act would have a devastating effect on the Philistine government. The works of government would come to a screeching halt for a while because all the five chief lords of the Philistines, they were all dead now. This should show us how easy it is for God to quickly disable an ungodly government. And when I think of our government right now, I'd be looking over my shoulder. I'd be looking up and just waiting. Of course, they don't know that and they don't believe that. But that's where they are. The eighth characteristic of, of Samson's situation is in regards to religion. God dealt Dagon a heavy blow. God intended that Dagon be dishonored and that he, the only true living God, be given the honor instead. So destroying the temple of Dagon with all of the people in it, it was a crushing blow to the dignity and the honor of Dagon. Later on, when the Ark of the Covenant, when the Ark of God was captured... 
and it was brought before Dagon. Remember, Dagon fell over, and his arms were broken in another dishonoring uh, of, of him by Jehovah God. Because he, God, God, does, God doesn't play that game. He, he doesn't tolerate competition. He's not in competition with any. There's nobody that can compete with him. All false gods and those who worship them will be brought down sooner or later. And then the ninth, ninth uh, great characteristic in regards to Samson's uh, work here was his achievement. It says in verse 30, which stands out the most in the text, his achievement in this, in this situation, he killed more people when he died than, had he, than he had killed during his entire lifetime. Samson had done some notable things. He accomplished some notable slayings during his life. He slew, remember the 30 men of Ashkelon in chapter 14, verse 19, after his wedding feast in order to pay off his, death, his bet on the riddle. It said that in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 8, he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. He did that in revenge for the destruction of his Philistine wife and her father. And he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But here, in his last act, he does a lot more against the Philistines than he did all the other times put together. Not only what he did here exceeded the other acts in number, not only, uh, uh, but considering the rulers that were killed, you know, we would have to say that, that this final act also had a greater impact on the government of Philistia than all the other things that he did, all the other acts put together. So in looking at all of this, we can see what Samson could have done for Israel. If, as a prisoner, he could do such devastating work on, on Philistia, imagine the greater work that he could have done if he would have lived obediently before God. It shows us how significantly our sins get in the way of our performance for God. In order for, for Samson to accomplish this great slaughter against the Philistines, he had to sacrifice himself. He noticed he said in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And those were the last words that he spoke. He pushed the building down and he was crushed to death along with all the Philistines in the building and all, all the others that were there. Samson won't get a lot of credit for sacrificing himself for the good of others because you see his motive was personal. He wanted revenge. But the lesson is still there that his sacrifice did result in the justification of God's glory and it gave Philistia a setback in their oppression of Israel. If Samson hadn't been willing to sacrifice his life here, the great work wouldn't have come to pass. All of this reminds us of the greatest sacrifice there ever was or ever will be, Jesus Christ and the cross, who, unlike Samson, Jesus had the highest motive for giving himself, for sacrificing himself. It wasn't a selfish motive. No selfish purpose was in the mind of Christ. He died so that others might live. That was his motive. Unless Jesus had died, there would be no gospel and no sinners could be saved. Christ's sacrifice should inspire our service. And Jesus talked about this. He addressed, he addressed this principle of sacrificing all for him in our service when he said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Matthew 16, 25. 
Save your life, you lose it. Lose your life, you save it. You know, it kind of so- it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. We might have to sacrifice reputation, jobs, money, time, friends, and many personal things, ambitions, in order to serve Jesus acceptably. And the many professing believers today who are so unwilling to sacrifice much of anything need to seriously think about these truths here. Verse 31. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. And he had judged Israel 20 years. So the news of this great destruction in Gaza, it would get around pretty quickly throughout Philistia and into Israel. Samson's relatives would hear about what he did. And when they did, hey, they went to Gaza to get Samson's body from the ruins and to take it back to Zorah to bury it. Now some people wondered how his relatives would dare go to Philistia to get his body. Because it would be dangerous wouldn't it be dangerous risking the possibility of being taken prisoners you know, by the Philistines in revenge? But most likely it wouldn't. It's believed that the effect of what happened you know, was, was so great that Samson's relatives could go there, pick up the body without, any, without being arrested or harassed. Because Gaza was like, you know, in, in a shock, a state of shock because of the greatness of what happened. The loss of, of, the, of some of the government officials, the disarray that it would be in, the shock that the people were in. So again, Gaza was in no condition to arrest or oppose uh, Samson's family for getting the body. Because for days, the Philistines would also be looking for bodies in the ruins and looking for valuables as well. So it was a very great calamity in the land. A temple was destroyed, thousands of people were killed, and the chief rulers were killed. So the country had to be in a state of shock and chaos for a while. So this would give Samson's relatives the circumstances that they needed to go and to get Samson's body out of the ruins. In other words, God had simply provided the necessary circumstances for Samson's body to be retrieved. Samson was given an honorable burial since he was buried where his father was buried. So in closing... How do, you, how do you evaluate Samson's life and ministry? Alexander McLaren says this, Instead of trying to make a lofty hero out of him, it is far better to recognize, frankly, the limitations of his character and the imperfections of his religion. If the merely human passion of vengeance throbbed fiercely in Samson's prayer, he had never heard, Love your enemies. And for his time in history, the destruction of the enemies of God and of Israel was a duty. Samson's decline began when he disagreed with his parents about marrying a Philistine girl. Then he didn't take his Nazarite vow seriously and he defiled himself. Then he disregarded the warnings of God and he disobeyed the word of God and he was defeated by the enemies of God. He probably thought that he had the privilege of, you know, of being able to indulge in sin. Hey, I'm a Nazarite. You know, I made a vow to God. I'm special. I've won so many victories for God that he felt, hey, I'm, I'm immune. But as we can see, he was wrong. 
Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Whoever has a rule over his own spirit, this speaks of self-control. Man, if you do not have self-control over your spirit, over your temper, over your attitude, over your, your personality, you're like a city broken down without walls. And in those days, the reason that cities had walls was to protect them from the enemy. But a city that didn't have walls, because for whatever reason, they were vulnerable to the enemy. And when the marauders would go through the desert, the thieves would look for cities without walls because they could go in and have their way with the people. They could, they could rape the women. They could steal, kill the men, do whatever they wanted. So it's the same idea, Samson, uh, uh, Solomon says, that if you have no self-control, Satan, Satan looks for you. He knows you. And he knows where to, what to do and when to do it. Solomon also said in Proverbs 16, 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And I'll finish with a quote from Warren Wiersbe. He said, I wonder whether Solomon was thinking about Samson when he wrote these words. Father, once again, we thank you for this, this wonderful story not a fairy tale but this narrative this account this record of samson's life god the good and the bad father help us to learn of the good and that we might apply the good and refrain from the bad lord father help us to look at ourselves and father to to take control of our spirit Father, to, to control our attitudes and our behavior and our words and, and the things that can then lead us astray. But the things that we saw that, that defile Samson was, was the defiance and the rebellion against God's word. And Father, it happens all the time. We saw that with Jonah. He defied the word of God. He ran away from God. And he went down and into the ship he went down it, it it takes you down it all started in the garden when eve disobeyed the word of god and when we disobey god's word we lose the greatest weapon that we have against our enemy and that is the word so father help us to understand the importance of your word and father to to apply it to everything that we do Every choice that we make, run it through the scriptures, Lord. Everything that we think about doing, run it through the scriptures. We thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Wednesday, we'll be back in Ezekiel. We'll be in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, it's Ezekiel's call, his commission. And God sends him to go. To go out and to serve. God bless you guys.